Okay, you know, uh, before we get into anything that I want to say, I did want to just make clear um, the homeless outreach, what exactly that entails, because we've actually had a number of people sign up for the senior side, but not many for the homeless side. And they're probably wondering, like, what's going to happen, right? But basically what we're going to do is uh, for four Saturdays in a row in July, we're going to go out with water bottles. I'm just going to get very concrete here so you can picture it with flyers wrapped around them with rubber bands, and we're gonna go around our immediate downtown area inviting whatever homeless people we see to a gathering. So we're gonna meet them uh, most likely right at this park here or immediately on the other side if the gates are closed. We'll meet right here in the parking lot in front of Dale's. And we're gonna just have a little Bible study with them. We're gonna uh, have a lunch the first time we gather. We're gonna provide lunch and then have a Bible study. And then every Saturday after that, we're going to have uh, care packages. So we're making these care packages. If you want to get involved in making those, we're going to have it, I believe, next Sunday where we're going to have all the goods here. We're going to put them together. But we're going to pass those out every Saturday at the Bible study. And there's going to be a time of just discussion, prayer for the homeless after, giving them some little cars with resources. And that's pretty much it. And so if you guys want to participate in that, then please sign up. So again, just an outreach, passing out water bottles, inviting them to a Bible study, giving them care packages, and having literally like a 15-minute uh, study on the life of Jesus. Just simple questions. So if you want to participate, please join us. All right. Okay, um, one more thing before we get into our passage, our message is I do want to say Happy Father's Day. So it's kind of a tradition that I pray for the fathers and the mothers every Father's and Mother's Day. Now, I know this day can hold a lot of different meanings for different people. For some, today brings up a lot of good memories and good feelings. For other people, not so good. But no matter where you are today, I know this is true. If you are in Christ, you have a perfect Heavenly Father. Amen? So you have a perfect Heavenly Father. James 1.17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I love that title for God the Father. He is our father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So you and I, we have a perfect heavenly father, and he is calling us, he has blessed us, he wants to be with us, he never changes, he will always be perfect. And because of that perfect father, now I know that the earthly father is here, and we have several here. Now you can be good fathers. I can be a good father. We can be better fathers. So today, I'm very thankful for our Heavenly Father. I'm very thankful for our earthly fathers here. And I want to pray for you guys. Now, before I pray, you know, I did come across this article that I want to mention. But this past week, I came across this article that basically said this Father's Day, we shouldn't say certain things to our dads. I'm paraphrasing here. But this article said, don't say to your dads, thank you for being strong or thank you for being a rock, because that's too narrow, right? That view of fatherhood doesn't fit everyone. That view of manhood is too narrow, but rather we should say, thank you for being in a relationship with me, and how do you feel today? <laughs> okay, so that, that was the advice of this article. Now, I care about how you feel, but that's dumb. Okay, that's dumb. So today, what I want to do is, if you're a father here today, I want to encourage you, you are strong, and I want to pray that you would be more strong, Amen. And we need strong fathers for our families, for our communities, for this church. We need fathers to be strong. We also need strong mothers. 
but we need strong fathers. And they look different, right? They're not the same, strong mothers and strong fathers. But let me pray. Please join me as I pray for the fathers. But God is good. He is our heavenly father. And he is here. But Father God, we want to acknowledge you, Lord, on this Father's Day. We don't want to look past you and look immediately to our earthly fathers. But Lord God, before anything else, we want to fix our eyes on our Heavenly Father. And you are perfect. No matter what kind of father we had growing up, and some of us didn't even have fathers, Lord, we all now in Christ have you. You are our perfect Heavenly Father, the Father of lights. And so, Lord God, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are in our lives, that you have called us into relationship with you, and you continuously guide us, you protect us, you provide for us. Everything our earthly fathers should do, you have done. So, Lord God, thank you. And, Lord God, you do more than just provide for us and relate to us, but now, Lord God, you have called the men in this room, those who are fathers, you have called us to be like you. So, Lord God, thank you so much, Lord. I pray for the earthly fathers. I pray for all the dads in this room that you would bless them, that you would strengthen them. Lord God, the culture minimizes the role of fathers. We shouldn't say to dads, thank you for being strong. That's their advice. But, Lord God, but we want to declare, no, you have called fathers to be strong on behalf of their families, their children, their wives, their churches, their communities, and I pray that you would strengthen them even more. Yes, we need strong mothers, but Lord God, we need strong fathers. So Lord God, strengthen the fathers. Give them courage. It takes a lot of courage to be a dad, to put aside their own desires and their own selfish pursuits and to say, you know what, I'm gonna sacrifice. I'm gonna put my family first, my church first, my community first. It takes courage. Give them great courage. Give them skill and ability to provide, to offer protection, to offer the relationship that their children desperately need, their wives need. I pray for that, God. So, Lord God, be with the fathers. Give them that kind of strength. So, Lord God, we thank you so much on this Father's Day for you and for the dads that are here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, praise God. Happy Father's Day. Okay, open up your Bibles to Daniel 4, 1 through 5, and then we're going to read a very long passage, but 19 all the way to 37. So we're going to read a big chunk of scripture today. But Daniel 4, 1 through 5, and then 19 through 37. And this is not a Father's Day message, just so you know. I usually don't give a Father's Day message. Okay, so Daniel 4, 1 through 5, if you're here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. This is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed, and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then go to verse 19. 
Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream, his dream, or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew, so now he's interpreting the dream, The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. That tree is you. O king, you have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of his roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods or seven years of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, At the end of 12 months, so this is a whole year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so now it's going back to first person, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, 
and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So he became even greater. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to give you glory again. Thank you for this time. Thank you again for the fathers that are here. Thank you for your fatherhood. And now, Lord God, as a good father, Lord, please speak to us. Give us your truth. As any good father speaks truth to their children, tells them what is right, tells them what is true, Lord God, speak to us. We want to hear. Open our hearts wide so that we may receive. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, praise God. Today we're going to be continuing our series on disciples at work. And of course, you know this by now, when I say work, I mean whatever expression of work you're in. I'm not thinking of any kind of particular work. But this can include remote work from home, gig work, homeschooling children, being a student, or doing acts of service as a retired person. So whatever you're engaged in, if it is real work, that's what we're talking about. And we are all called to be disciples in whatever work we are in. And throughout this entire series, we've been looking at the book of Daniel to teach us how to be disciples in our work. And so today, we're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar and his pride in Daniel chapter 5. So we're just marching right through the first half of Daniel. So here we are now in chapter 5. And I didn't plan this, but it's interesting how we've now come to this chapter on his pride right in the middle of Pride Month. So I didn't plan that, but it just happened that way. And our nation right now has set aside an entire month to celebrate sin and rebellion against God, unfortunately. In contrast, we only get one day to celebrate our mothers and fathers, but there's an entire day set aside to celebrate rebellion. But we are in this Pride Month, and that pride is a direct opposition to God. And why do I mention this? The reason why is because, as we're going to see today, pride in general is always like that. It is a direct opposition to God, even in the workplace. And we're going to look at that. So what we're going to look at today is pride in general, how it's an opposition to God, but especially in the workplace. So pride in the workplace. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Daniel chapter 3. Last week, we had a guest speaker. It was a wonderful time looking at evangelism. But two weeks ago, I spoke on Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he basically grabbed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Jewish exiles who were basically his employees, and he threw them into a furnace. Why? Because they wouldn't bow to an idol, his enormous idol that he had set up. So into this fiery furnace they went. But Jesus appeared inside that furnace with them, and then he delivered them out of that furnace. And by the way, we looked at how Jesus does this to all of us, amen? So even in our suffering, Jesus appears and walks with us through our suffering to bring us through that. So we looked at this in Daniel chapter 3, and although Nebuchadnezzar at the end of that chapter seemed to come around and acknowledge the one true God, So after seeing that miracle, after seeing that fourth man, Jesus, in the furnace appear and deliver them out, he praised the one true God. He acknowledged him. And yet, he wasn't truly saved. And we know that because now, when we come to chapter 4, 
more things are happening to him. So even though he acknowledged the one true God to a degree, he didn't truly get saved yet. So now in chapter 4, a few years have gone by. And now there's a deeper transformation that took place. Okay, a more profound change. And great Bible scholars throughout history, I'm talking about Augustine, Calvin, Wesley, they have been divided on whether Nebuchadnezzar truly became saved in this chapter. So I didn't know this, but as I studied this chapter, I realized there's been this big debate over church history on whether Nebuchadnezzar has truly been saved. So we don't know. I guess we'll only know once we get to heaven. But here's the point. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's view of God and acceptance of God dramatically changed. It changed so much that people have been debating, I mean, did he really get saved? Did he really receive salvation? So that debate has been going on for centuries. But the point is, something dramatic happened. There was a big change that he went through. So this pagan king had a totally new experience of God. Was he touched by God before? Absolutely. He had that dream in chapter 2 revealed to him. He said, somebody tell me what I dreamt and the interpretation Daniel did it. He was blown away by that. Chapter 3, he grabbed these Jewish, you know, rebellious people who weren't bowing. He threw them in. He saw the fourth man appear, deliver them out. He was blown away. So yes, he had experiences of God, but here it was a total new experience of God he had. And because of it, now he had a total new understanding of God, maybe even a new faith in God. And so we see that, but look at his words, or listen, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages. And by the way, this is the only place in the Bible where a pagan king's words are recorded in scripture. It's amazing. Here's a pagan king. It's in the Bible. This is part of scripture. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. He's very happy here. And then he goes on. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. There was an experience he had. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So do you see that? He had this profound experience. Something big changed in his life. So what happened? What brought about this change? Well, it's very simple. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by crushing his pride. And then he restored Nebuchadnezzar to a place even greater than before. And through that experience, there's a lot that we can also learn about pride and how God will even use that to bring transformation in our lives. And we're talking about pride even in the workplace. But there is profound things that God will do to humble us, to crush us in our pride, and then to restore us. And through that, we are transformed. And so this is what I want to look at today. But pride, okay, what, what does God have to say about pride in general? Okay, we're not talking about pride month. We're talking about pride in general even in the workplace. Well, there are several things we can learn, and here's the first one, the threat of pride. But there is great threat in pride. But Daniel 4, 20 through 22, it says here, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reached, reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So here, I just read the same thing that we just saw. But here, Daniel is describing this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And this dream was of a cosmic tree at the center of the earth. So imagine this kind of glowing, like, Disney tree, right? That's the picture I had. A tree that you might see in a Disney movie. But, but it's large. It is glowing. It is pulsating. It is reaching up to heaven. It's literally touching heaven itself. And underneath that cosmic tree, there's all kinds of shade and protection and food and abundance that is being given to the people on the earth. All the inhabitants of the earth at that time. And the amazing thing about this dream is Daniel said, you're that tree, Nebuchadnezzar. You dreamt it, you're the tree. And not only that, but this dream, this tree represented Nebuchadnezzar's glory, the height of his power. So this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar at the height, when he was at the highest peak of his kingdom, his authority, his reign, his power, his glory. So things were going really good for him, and that's when he had his dream. But not all was well. And so this is very clear. Something was very, very amiss. We know this because of Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream. So you would think if things are going so well, you're on top of life, and then you have a dream, you would think it'd be really good, right? But Nebuchadnezzar knew this was not good. And Daniel had the same response. So look at Daniel 4, verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid, Nebuchadnezzar said. This terrified me. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then Daniel agreed. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Same word, right? They're both alarmed by this. They're terrified. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But then Belteshazzar basically said, no, I can't help it. Okay, I'm terrified by this dream. May it be for your enemies. So why? So here's Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power on top of the world, He's given this dream, and it terrified him. It terrified Daniel. So why? Well, we're going to see why in a little bit. We're going to really dive into it a little bit more. But just initially, though, here's the reason. Just right from the beginning, the reason why he was so terrified by it is because this dream, through this dream, God was revealing that you are being threatened, Nebuchadnezzar, because of your pride. There was a great threat over your life because of your pride. So no matter how glorious and powerful he might have looked, there was an incredible threat to his life. And that threat resided in his heart. And it was pride. So pride is like that. It is an incredible threat. As you climb higher and higher in your life, that threat grows. It's kind of like a lion that attacks you as you climb higher and higher up a mountain. The higher you go, the more risk you are for the mountain lions to come and attack you. And that is pride. But it not only attacks those who climb higher in success and power, but it attacks anyone who has a certain view of themselves. You might not even be doing that well, but if you have a certain view of yourself, then you are under this threat. Proverbs 26.12. Do you see a man or woman who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In other words, the Bible is saying you're under a great threat. There's more hope for a fool, an idiot, to survive and to go on with life than a person who thinks they're wise in their own eyes, who has pride. But how can that be, right? How is that possible? How is pride a threat, especially in the workplace? 
Because when you think about it, when you're at work, isn't a certain level of pride necessary? Don't you need pride? Don't you need a certain level of pride in yourself, a level of self-confidence to succeed? Isn't pride a necessary ingredient to do well in work and life? And if you're asking that, you're not alone because a lot of the greatest minds, thinkers, philosophers throughout history thought the same thing. You know, I've been reading this book called Virtue and Vice at Work, but the author mentions that. But for example, Aristotle, many of you guys have learned about him, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, but he believed this. But Aristotle taught that the man of virtue must possess magnanimity. Okay, that big word just means largeness of mind. In, in other words, self-confidence. They must have self-assurance. So basically, Aristotle taught that in order to be a person, a person of virtue, in other words, somebody who has good character, who advances in life, like, for example, at work, advancing in their career, you need to have self-confidence. And I know there are people here maybe saying amen to that, right? Definitely in the world, many people would agree. David Hume, he's another very well-known philosopher. And here's a quote. This is an actual quote from him. Celibacy, fasting, penance, mortification, self-denial, humility, silence, solitude, and the whole train of monkish virtues serve no manner of purpose. In other words, they're worthless. Neither do they advance a man's fortune in the world nor render him a more valuable member of society, neither qualify him for the entertainment of company nor increase his power of self-enjoyment. Did you hear that? Hume, one of the most well-known philosophers in history, says, you know, all this stuff, humility, fasting, being humble, worthless. The author of the book, he has summarized uh, Hume's position like this, but he said, if Hume were writing today, he might well ask, humility? What is it good for? It doesn't bolster your LinkedIn pro profile, right? Oh, I'm so humble. I'm going to type that into my LinkedIn. I mean, is that going to get you your job? It doesn't pad your resume. It doesn't instill confidence from your team. It keeps you from living the good life. And worst of all, it makes you an absolute bore at parties. So in other words, that's what Hume is saying, according to this author. So philosophers... In the past, and many people today, for sure people today, that's what they think. That pride is a necessary ingredient. If you're going to be great, if you've got to move forward in your life, if you've got to do things to advance your career, then you've got to have a level of pride. You've got to have some pride in yourself. Get some self-confidence. You need to have that sense that I'm actually capable, right? I'm actually pretty capable. I'm above average. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not the best, but I'm ahead of the pack, right? I can do certain things. Okay, let, let's do it. You've got to have that mindset. And by the way, when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, isn't that how he reached the highest levels of success? Yeah, how did he get to the very, very top? Is it because he was so humble? He put everyone ahead of him, right? Considered others better than himself. Is that how Nebuchadnezzar got to the very top? I would say no way. He conquered. He took what belonged to him. He took what didn't belong to him. He did whatever he could to get ahead, and that's how he reached the very top. So isn't that what we need? Isn't pride necessary? So how in the world can this be a threat? Well, the Bible says it is a threat for good reasons. So let me give you what these reasons are. But first, pride brings the threat of becoming empty. It brings the threat of becoming empty. What I mean is pride if left all alone in your heart, it will make your life and your work absolutely empty. Empty. 
Okay, why? Well, the reason why is because pride is always more concerned with the appearance of your work rather than the work itself, right? Okay, if you're a proud person and you show up to work and you got to get ahead and you got to prove who you are, you're really not concerned about the work itself. What are you concerned about? The appearance of the work. I want people to know I could do this and know that I can actually do a good job and they need to see that. It's the appearance of work. Pride is not so much concerned with excellence, it's concerned with appearing excellent. Okay, same thing. Pride is not so much concerned with being diligent, it's concerned with appearing diligent. And that's why in this day and age, I heard, and I'm not going to make it a generational thing, I know so many people, you know, rag on Gen Z and millennials, I mean Gen X, everyone, right? But this is why whenever people show up to work and no one's looking, what happens? I'm going to surf online for a while. Why? Because they're not so concerned with being actually diligent. Because if you're actually concerned with that, you'll be diligent no matter what. No matter who's looking. But the proud person trying to get ahead, they're concerned with the appearance of diligence. See, pride is never satisfied by good work in and of itself. It must be recognized for the good work. That is what pride is concerned about. So pride is always more concerned with the appearance of our work rather than the work itself. Now, some of you guys might be wondering, though, but can't you have pride in the work itself? But isn't that okay, though, to have pride in the work itself? And that's a good question. Yes, you can have pride in your work itself, but there is a vast difference between having pride in your work and just having pride. Okay, I'm not talking about having pride in your work. We're talking about just having pride. But there's a vast difference, and the difference has to do with what pleases you about your work. When you go to work, what pleases you? What satisfies you? Okay, what makes your heart content? So what pleases you about your work? Are you pleased by the work itself? So let's say you're doing this project, you finish the project, are you pleased by the project itself, the way it turned out, okay, what it actually is? Are you pleased by how it blessed the people that, you were, that was involved in that with you, your teammates? How it pleased your boss, even if he's a bad boss, right? But, but it pleased my boss, are you pleased with that? How it helped you grow in your skills, maybe some character, area of character in your life. Are you pleased with that? And if you are, if you're pleased by your work in any of those areas, then I would say you have pride in your work. That's a good thing. You have pride in your work. But if you look at the work you did and what pleases you about it is, oh, it makes me look better than others, than that other person, that annoying guy, (laughs) right, sitting across the room, across the office. It makes me look better. It gives me more recognition than somebody else. It makes me feel superior to others in my field. It doesn't even have to be a, a specific person. It could just be people in general in my field. It just makes me better than the majority of the people in my field. Now, all of that might actually be true. Your work did get noticed. It did put you ahead of others. But if, if that is what pleases you, do you understand what I'm saying? If that is what pleases you, then you no longer have pride in your work. You just have pride. It's just pride. Because now it's no longer about the work itself or some objective good you're doing, but rather it's about me. Who's looking at me? Who's recognizing me? Who's worse than me? Who's better than me? And that's empty. Brothers and sisters, that's completely empty. You show up to work every single day and that is what drives you I mean, what is that? It's nothing. It's empty. So that's the first thread of pride, the thread of becoming empty. 
But here's another threat, the threat of becoming contemptuous. Contemptuous. Contempt is looking down on someone, right? With disdain, right? You're beneath me. Well, pride will always cause you to see certain work as beneath you. It will always cause you to see certain people at work as beneath you. The proud will never say that, right? They don't go around saying, oh, you're beneath me. Why? Because they care about appearances. So the appearance of being a good person, the appearance of being a team player, that matters a lot. So you're never going to go around saying you're beneath me. In fact, you might say the opposite because you've got to appear a certain way. But that contempt is there nonetheless. Kind of like a shadow over your face. That contempt is there. You just have to look more carefully, right? You'll see it. And one way this contempt shows up, especially at work, is a lack of patience. A lack of patience. A lack of patience at work is often a sign of contempt and pride. Why? Okay, why? Well, you see, people don't like, lack patience when working with others because they're in a hurry. Well, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes you're in a hurry, so you're lacking patience. But usually that's not why you lack patience at work. But usually, people lack patience at work because they can't endure what they believe is a waste of time. Okay, you're you're, you're talking to me right now about all this stuff, about your family, and that's important to that other person. But deep in your heart, you're like, this is a waste of time. Somebody comes up to you and they're so excited about a project they finished and the way it turned out and they're just genuinely happy about that and they're trying to describe this project to you and you're... You're impatient. Why? It's just a waste of time. So deep in your heart, it's a waste of time. Not only a waste of time, it's a waste of my time. My time. So whether it's a coworker talking to you about how their project turned out, sharing something about their family, even something important to them, it's hard to be patient. Why? Because what I'm thinking about right now, okay, you came up to me in the middle of me thinking about something, or what I'm doing right now is really more important than anything you're saying or doing. And that's why we're so impatient. Why why bother me right now? I don't really care about that because what I'm doing, what I'm thinking is more important than what you're trying to tell me. And to go from what you're saying is a waste of my time to you're a waste of my time, that's not a big step. It's a very small step. If we go around thinking, oh, what you're saying is a waste of my time, can quickly turn into, you're a waste of my time. Right, you're a waste of my time. And so we lack patience at work, and that often is a sign of pride. It comes from pride. And so pride is a threat. It threatens to make us contemptuous of others. It's a real threat. But here's one more threat, the threat of becoming ruthless. Pride also can make us ruthless. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote an entire chapter on pride in his book, Mere Christianity. It's a great chapter. <laughs> I, I love that book. You could just, you know, read chapters, you know, isolated from each other. But Lewis wrote this chapter on pride. He called it the great sin. And in that chapter, he made some inter- interesting observations on pride. But Lewis says certain sins can bring people together. And that's true, right? So if you like drinking and you get drunk all the time, I mean, you can do that with a lot of people and it brings people together. You have worldly pursuits. I mean, you're really worldly. You like, you know, spending money and traveling or, I don't know, playing a lot of golf all the time. I mean, that could bring people together. Those things are sinful, right? Not golf. but I'm just saying, you know, worldly pursuits and drinking. And certain sins can bring people together. But Lewis says, pride? But pride's different. 
Why? Because pride is a sin that makes enemies. It makes enemies. It can even turn friends into enemies. Why is that? Because as Lewis pointed out, pride is never about just being excellent. But pride is what? Is always about being more excellent than someone else. That's pride. If you're truly a proud person and you're excelling at work but nobody notices, you're going to be bothered by that. If you're truly a proud person and you're making tons of money, enough to just be satisfied and comfortable in your life, but you're proud, right? You're not going to be satisfied with that. you got to have a little bit more than the other person. You need more than your cousin. You need more than that kid that your parents always bring up. You need more. It's never about just being recognized. It's about having more recognition than someone else. It's never about just being a faithful Christian. It's about being more faithful than someone else. That's pride. So pride always exists in reference to others. You got to have somebody else to compare yourself to in order for pride to be satisfied. So some sins bring people together, but never pride. Pride always makes enemies. Even friends become enemies. And this is why pride over time can cause people to be ruthless. They become ruthless. Why? Because pride demands that we push others down in order for us to rise above. It's always in reference to others. It's not good enough to just rise. I need to rise above others. And so we push others down. So do you see what a threat pride is? Pride is a great threat. It can make us empty. It can make us contemptuous. It can make us ruthless, heartless. At the end of the day, I'm just going to get mine, and i got to be better than you. And so going back to our original question, isn't pride necessary to getting ahead, advancing in our careers? Don't we need that self-confidence? And the answer is clearly no. The Bible says no. It is a great threat, just like Nebuchadnezzar. It was a great threat in his life. You know, going back to that book, Virtue and Vice at Work, the author summarized it up like this. But he said, to sum up the pernicious vice of vainglory, in other words, pride. When he says vainglory, he means pride. The pernicious vice of pride will slowly make an otherwise virtuous person impossible to get along with. Arrogant, impatient, caustic in speech, slow to follow directions, prone to insubordination, inflexible, unresponsive to feedback, unwilling to collaborate, closed off to the ideas of other people, opinionated, basically the worst coworker you can imagine. Pride turns you into the worst coworker you can imagine, he says. So unlike what those old philosophers and a lot of people today say, oh, you need pride, you need self-confidence to get ahead, the Bible says, no, it's a great threat. It's a great threat to you, to your career, and in fact, the rest of your life. But pride is more than just a threat to our careers, but it deceives us into thinking there is no God, or at least there is no need of God. So it gets far worse than that, brothers and sisters, and so we're going to get into this. But Obadiah 1.3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Obadiah said that to Edom. It was an enemy of Israel. But Edom was boasting that who's going to bring us down? Not even God. They were boasting. And then Obadiah said, be careful. The pride of your heart has deceived you. It's deceiving you. You think you don't need God. Psalm 10.4 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. 
So that's the heart of the proud person. It's, it's not just about like wrecking your career and ruining your chances to advance. No, the proud, it goes far deeper than that. Ultimately, they don't need God. There is no God as far as they're concerned. So pride causes us to live empty lives and mistreat others, but it's far worse than that. It rejects the reality of God, God himself, and this was Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is why God appeared at the height of his glory when he was on top of the world and gave him this great warning, the most severe warning you can imagine. And so this brings us to the next point, the warning against pride. There's a warning against pride. So Daniel 4.23, it says, the king saw a watcher. Now this word watcher is very interesting. It can also be translated awakeful one, the awake one. And some people see this as an angel, but there are reasons to believe that this is not just an angel, but this is actually a member of the divine council. And we don't have time to get into this in today's message, but a lot of people think that the only things in the universe are God, angels, and humans, right? Good angels, bad angels, and humans. But more and more what Bible scholars have discovered are, no, there's a whole other category of created beings. Is God, divine council called the heavenly host. These are lesser divine beings, They're not angels, but in some measure, they rule with God. But there's God the Father, Jesus the Son, right? The triune true God. And then there are lesser divine beings that are also created like us. And then there are angels. And then there are human beings. So this watcher is probably not an angel. It is a member of the divine council, this heavenly host. That's why this different name is given to, to this person, watcher, the wakeful one. By the way, Psalm 82 talks about this heavenly host, this divine council. It's very interesting. But here's the point. God's decree to Nebuchadnezzar came through this watcher. Why? Because it was that serious. This was a stern warning. It was not just a regular warning. It was a massive warning, a big decree. In fact, a member of the divine council itself, a watcher, was sent to deliver it. So the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. There, the picture of the tree being chopped down and then covered, sealed with this iron bronze band is a picture of God's control, but also God's protection. But God's saying, this is what's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't humble yourself. You're going to get chopped down, but there's going to be a stump left, but I'm going to protect you but you're also going to be under my control. So chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth and bind it with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. So Nebuchadnezzar received this decree from God, this stern warning from heaven. It was a decree to chop down the cosmic tree, leaving only a stump. And this represented a total and utter humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. There's no other way to interpret it. This would be a total and utter humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. So this dream was a warning. That's the point. This dream was a warning from God to Nebuchadnezzar. And God was saying, you better humble yourself, Nebuchadnezzar, because you are under a great threat. You better humble yourself. Otherwise, I will humble you. And Daniel got this message. That's why he was so urgent in warning Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at, again, Daniel verse 4, chapter 4, verse 27. He said, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness 
and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So you see it. Daniel was very concerned, right? He he was so worried that he basically said, you know what, this is kind of out of line, Nebuchadnezzar, but I think you should listen. I think you should humble yourself. I think you should repent and do it now. Daniel was very worried. But here's what's so unusual about God's strong warning. When the warning came, there was nothing that Nebuchadnezzar was outwardly doing that was wrong. That seemed so bad. So yes, earlier, years ago, he came and destroyed Jerusalem, but that was even under God's direction. The Bible even calls Nebuchadnezzar God's servant. So Nebuchadnezzar did that, destroyed Jerusalem, brought a lot of the Israelites into Babylon. But then years later, here we are now, and there's really nothing wrong that he's doing, nothing that terrible is happening in his life. And so when the warning came, outwardly, there was really nothing that bad. He had built an incredible kingdom, the greatest in the world, right? He had climbed to the very top in terms of power and glory. He had even taken down that monstrous idol in the previous chapter, and he acknowledged the God of Israel. So based on what Daniel said, the worst thing that Nebuchadnezzar probably was doing was living a lavish life. That's probably the worst thing he was doing. And he was also ignoring the needs of the oppressed. But it doesn't say he was the one oppressing them. Daniel Daniel was just saying, you know what, meet the needs of the oppressed. So he was kind of ignoring that. So there wasn't a terrible sin in his life, at least outwardly, and yet God pronounced the greatest warning, one of the greatest in Scripture. Why? And we know why. It's because although outwardly he seemed to be living a prosperous and respectable life, he was advancing, he was on top of the world. All he was doing was just kind of living comfortably. But in the pride of his heart, he had rejected the reality of God. I'll say that again. The great sin is that in the pride of his heart, he had rejected the reality of God. And so pride is usually the sin of the virtuous, the moral, the best among us. Outwardly, you look at these people, there's really nothing that bad going on. And yet, in God's eyes, he says, the sternest warning is on you. The greatest warning is on you. Why? Because you have the greatest sin. You have literally rejected the reality of God. So while looking at his great achievements, and by the way, Babylon was truly the most amazing empire. That's why he was the head of gold. I mean, I'm not going to get into all the archaeology and all the things, but I mean, there were many, like two sets of double walls that were so wide, so thick, that chariots could be um, driven across the top of these walls. You know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is considered one of the great seven wonders of the world. You know what that Babylon uh, garden was? It was literally a mountain that Nebuchadnezzar brought from his uh, wife's hometown because she lived in a mountainous area. He literally moved that mountain or built a mountain like it in Babylon, which rested on a plain. But it was a glorious place. So as he was looking at all these achievements, everything he had built, Nebuchadnezzar believed in the depths of his heart. I'm responsible. I did this, right? This is me, right? I did it. You know, not long ago, someone shared in our CG that she has a coworker who genuinely could not accept that God was the source of his success at work. But she was talking to him, and he said, basically, I'm the one who got this job, right? I'm the one who worked hard. I'm the one who earned what I make. So why should I thank God? 
And so this is an example of that kind of outright rejection of God. Okay, don't, don't make any mistake about it. That, that is an outright rejection of God, the reality of God himself. See, an alcoholic, see other sins, it doesn't go that far because an alcoholic might get drunk every night. Right? Again, they have friends, it brings people together, they're getting drunk. And he might even be hurting the ones he loves, but he never, probably in his heart, is rejecting the reality of God. Rather, I've talked to alcoholics. We've even had some come through our church from time to time. He might even be running from, from God, but oftentimes these people, they don't reject the reality of God. In fact, they're very, very aware of it. In fact, they're fearing the reality of God. So you, you can put whatever other sin in that place, but oftentimes sins don't reject outright the reality of God, but not the proud. The proud reject him altogether. You know, going back to Lewis again, he said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, meaning the most fundamental vice, the most utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, meaning having sex outside of marriage, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's so good. That's so true. But pride at its core is anti-God. See, other sins, I, you know, I can't say that. I've known people who commit all kinds of sins. I've committed all kinds of sins. But at its core, is it anti-God? A lot of times these sinners, they're very aware of God. They're afraid of God even. But pride at its core is anti-God. And so this was Nebuchadnezzar. Although God had given him everything he had, his pride rejected that. I did it. There's no room in his heart for God. He can't acknowledge God. He truly believed he had built this kingdom. He obtained everything on his own. And the Bible says this anti-God pride will be punished. It will be punished. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured. In other words, don't make any mistake. He will not go unpunished. He will not go unpunished. You know the picture I get? I remember um, I used to love going to Chuck E. Cheese <clears throat> when I was little. That was my, that was my, my, my uh, stomping ground, right? <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese. But, but they would have that uh, game, Whack-A-Mole. Have you guys ever played that Whack-A-Mole game? But you pop in a quarter, and it's very addictive. I don't know why. It's so addictive, right? The music starts, and then the points come up on the screen. And the moment these little moles pop up, you have this, you know, rubber hammer. Bam! Bam! You got to, something inside of you, you're driven to, like, you got to hit the, those little moles that pop up. You got to whack them. Whack-a-mole, right? Go play it if you haven't played it. Whack-a-mole. In many ways, that's the way I see it here. God isn't doing this in joyful glee. But because of his holiness, his justice, he's saying, I must whack-a-mole. Anybody begins to strengthen their neck and try to rise above even God himself? What God? What God? I did it. Thank him for what? See, pride at its core is anti-God. And God says, nope, you're going to get punished. You will be punished. And so this was Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And yet God, even as he says, be assured, the proud will be punished. God in his love warns us before it happens. He warns. And that's what the dream was. It was a warning from God to Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he not only warns, but he gives us time to repent. And so God gave Nebuchadnezzar a full year to repent. It says 12 months went by. So God is truly a gracious God. Fundamentally, we reject him. This is anti-God. We don't even acknowledge his existence. It is an affront to his kingdom, to who he is. And God says, you know what? This must be punished, but I'm going to give you a warning first. And I'm going to give you time to repent. And so God warns us of our pride. In fact, right now, he's warning us through his word. He'll also warn us by shaking our idols. We talked about idols a few weeks ago. And oftentimes, that idol is our work. It's our career. It's our job. But he'll shake it. He will shake our idols, the things we value more than anything, the things we trust in more than God, the things that have become ultimate in our life. But he will shake them. He might not remove them immediately, but he will shake them. Why? To stir up fear. It's a warning. He also warns us through coworkers. See, as you go to work every day, I I encourage you to keep your eyes open because God is speaking. He's going to warn you. But I'm talking about coworkers that you don't have the patience for, like we looked at earlier. Okay, that's a warning. Okay, why is this person in my life? Why is he right next to me in the cubicle next to me? Why is this person always interrupting me? Why is he testing my patience every day, even though it's important things he's trying to say? Well, there's a reason why. Okay, something about this person annoys me, right? They're nice. They're too nice. Okay, they seem to be strong in all the areas that I'm weak in. Okay, why is this person right next to me? <laughs> okay, why is he on my team? And so we grow envious. And we know we're envious, why? Because the moment they suggest something, even the smallest suggestion, right? Hey, have you thought about maybe uh, printing it on this paper? Shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that word. <laughs> I teach my children never to say that word. Be quiet. Be quiet, Right? Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> right? Even the small suggestion. Well, what is that? Okay, why is that person in your life? Well, I would say it's a warning. You know, I used to tell my wife that God has put certain people in my life, not her, but other people. God has put certain people in my life that I don't get along with. And that's true. All through my ministry, there's always, inevitably, someone who comes along eventually. Not, not all the time. Right now, there doesn't seem to be anybody. But eventually, Somebody comes along that I don't get along with, and why is that person here, God? Why is that person so close to me, God? Well, it's to humble me and to change me. It's a warning. It's a warning from God. And so God, in those moments, he's saying, there's pride in your heart, right? There's a pride in your heart. It's kind of like that arrow that shot across the bow. It's kind of like that little red light on your dash, in your car, but there is pride in your heart. Humble yourself. Or to use the words of Daniel, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Before it's too late, repent, break off your sins. And so God warned Nebuchadnezzar of his anti-God pride, and he gave him time to repent, but unfortunately he didn't. And this brings us to the downfall of pride, the downfall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is exactly what happened. We already read these verses. We won't read them again. But basically, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. But he went from being on top of the world, being so in possession of power and glory, and he was also probably a very smart man to get to that point, right? The greatest king the earth has known up to that point, 
He truly was a great king. Even secular historians say that. He truly was a mighty king, a good king even. But he went from that to now eating grass like cows in the field. He literally lost his mind. I heard that there is a condition that actually is like that, but, but that's not the point, right? The point is this was a judgment upon God. So Nebuchadnezzar's downfall is a graphic picture of how pride makes us less than human. So pride always diminishes us and makes us less than what we are. And so that is one form of God's judgment for the proud, is that as they continue to walk in that pride, as that pride festers over time, it will diminish them. It will make them less than what they are, sometimes even less than human. So earlier we talked about how pride makes us empty, contemptuous, ruthless. I mean, is that who you are? If you were to describe yourself in three words, are those the words you would choose? Okay, three words, okay, this is an icebreaker. Three words, hmm, okay, I'm empty, I'm contemptuous, and I'm ruthless. No, nobody sees themselves that way. And yet that's what pride turns them into. It makes you less than who you are. And it's often the most virtuous, the best workers, the people who excel that become like that. You know, when you look at the enemy, Lucifer, it's no accident that the greatest created being, Lucifer, the greatest being created by God, he was the one who became the devil. Him, not a lesser being, the greatest being created. He became the devil. Why? Because he had the most pride. And so Lucifer wanted to be exalted above God, but because of his pride, now he was cast down, even beneath us. See, that's what pride does. It always diminishes. It always makes us less than who we are. And no one gets away with pride. Nobody can escape escape that judgment. See, the reason why I say it like that is because pride is one of the few sins where people think they can get away with it. In fact, they're not even aware of it. Pride is often blinding. But even those who kind of know, right, I'm a little bit proud. I'm a proud person. Maybe in certain areas, they tend to think they get away with it. You know what, sleeping around, I probably won't get away with that. My wife's going to find out. My husband's going to find out. Right, cheating on my taxes, the IRS, they're going to find that out. Right, being like a nasty person at church, everyone's going to know that. But pride, thinking I'm all that, people think they get away with that, and yet the Bible is so clear. That's the one you never get away with. You never get away with pride. Pride is the one sin that God says will be punished. Again, whack-a-mole. It will be punished. You know, it's so interesting. I'm not here to pronounce judgment on anybody. I'm not here to declare how God sees anybody ultimately. But it is very interesting. When you look at some of the most proud and arrogant people in our generation, I'm talking about public figures, it's so interesting the way, the unique way that judgment fell. But I think about Muhammad Ali, you know, the boxer, the greatest of all time. But he was one of the most proud and arrogant men in his generation. He was. Aside from him being an amazing boxer, he was extremely arrogant. You watch old video clips of him, incredibly arrogant. You know, this is a funny story, but one time he was on this flight, and the flight attendant walked up beside him going, Sir, um, there's turbulence. Uh, You need to put on your seatbelt. And Ali immediately said, Superman don't need no (laughs) seatbelt. And then the flight attendant, without skipping a beat, said, well, Superman doesn't need a plane either. Put on your seatbelt, right? All right. So he put it on. But that's how arrogant he was. But it's so interesting, though. But in the second half of his life, he caught Parkinson's. You don't catch Parkinson's, but Parkinson's is a genetic disease. But but Parkinson's 
disease came upon his body, and then soon he lost his ability to talk. He, the man who had the quickest lip, right, so arrogant, boasting all the time, he couldn't talk anymore. It's very interesting. You know, somebody else very similar, Christopher Hitchens, the outspoken atheist. He wrote the book, God is Not Great. And I actually liked listening to Hitchens. He was very funny. I thought he was one of the funniest guys I, I, I listened to, very witty. But you could just tell, though, just dripping with arrogance, right? Oh, the religious idiots, right? And God is not great. And, you know, God caused more pain and suffering in the world than anyone. And he's just, just dripping with arrogance. And it's so interesting. What happened to him? Eventually, he got cancer of the throat. He lost his ability to talk. Just like Ali, they couldn't talk towards the end of their lives. God silenced them. Now, I mean, we don't, we don't desire that. A lot of people were praying for Hitchens. Hitchens actually was open to hearing the gospel. I heard towards the end of his life, he took a road trip with a, a well-known Christian author. But this is the judgment upon pride. Pride always diminishes us, and the proud will always be brought down. It's kind of like the law of gravity. Anything that rises up will be brought down. So this is God's judgment, and yet even in judgment, God has mercy. So ultimately, God brought Nebuchadnezzar down, not to destroy him, but to restore him and give him a new life. And we're going to have to wrap this up quickly. But this is our final point, new life after pride. So if you look at verse 34 through 37, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then he goes on to just praise the Lord. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So here Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you know what? I finally acknowledge the living God. See, I had this sin in my heart, pride, that's anti-God. I didn't even acknowledge he existed and yet now I acknowledge him fully. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar says, I became even greater even greater after being humbled. But how? Okay, how did he become even greater? Well, it's because now, finally, Nebuchadnezzar was able to receive God's grace. So listen, James 4, 6, but God gives grace, more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But how exactly was Nebuchadnezzar able to receive God's grace? So that's how he was restored. That's how he became even greater, God's grace. But how did he receive it? And we're gonna come to a close very soon but he received it by what his eyes were looking at. This is very important, but look at verse 34. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Lifted my eyes to heaven. See, before that, what was he looking at? He was looking at what? Out upon his kingdom, his own kingdom. Now he was looking upon God and his kingdom. See, before Nebuchadnezzar saw himself at the center of the universe in his dream, right, that cosmic tree. So he saw himself at the center of the universe. Now he sees God at the center of the universe. And I want you to notice this, please. But looking to heaven is not the same thing as I paid my dues. It is not I paid my dues. That is not why Nebuchadnezzar was now restored, because he paid his dues. Okay, seven years went by, I suffered. Now it's time to come back. No, 
A lot of people, especially people who are disgraced in public, right? They had a scandal, they're removed, then they come back, I paid my dues. That is so not the Bible. It is not, I paid my dues. Nebuchadnezzar was not restored because he had paid for his sins and, and, and suffered enough. People who say, I paid my dues, do not look up to heaven. In fact, they're unable to. They are still looking at themselves. I paid my dues, right? They're not looking up to heaven. But no, Nebuchadnezzar, this was completely something different. He looked to heaven. In other words, he looked away from himself. He wasn't even thinking about his own suffering, his own dues, what he paid, what he didn't pay, but he simply looked onto God because he knew there's nothing I could have done to be restored. I was insane. I lost my mind. Only God could have brought me back. So in other words, he had no other hope than to look to God. And so brothers and sisters, in closing, if you want to be free from your pride, if you want to be restored as well, and to be lifted up even greater than before, then you need to look away from yourself and now look unto God. And specifically who? Look unto the true tree at the center of the universe. The true king of kings. And who is that? Jesus. Because see, Jesus, he's not just simply a tree that is more glorious than our tree. He's not simply a king that's greater than the king that we look to, but he is the king that was chopped down, right? So in this dream, that tree that represented Nebuchadnezzar was chopped down completely. Well, Jesus actually did that in our place. And so this is the gospel. He was chopped down in our place. And for Jesus, there was no stump. It was ripped out from the roots because he suffered under God's wrath and was cast into hell. And so Jesus was the tree that was chopped down on our behalf. And because of that now, we are now free. We will never be chopped down like that. So now all we must do, like Nebuchadnezzar, is simply look. You just got to look to him, brothers and sisters. So right now, today, if you feel hopeless, if you feel caught in a cycle of pride and false humility, and we don't have time to look at false humility, but that's just another side of pride. Because it's still you. Right? You're still looking at what you are, what you aren't. But if you're caught in that hopeless cycle of pride and false humility, maybe you're, you're even experiencing a level of judgment from God, then I just encourage you, look to heaven. Okay? Look to the cosmic tree that was chopped down on your behalf. Amen? Okay, you gotta look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, then now, you know what you can do? You can begin to do things in your life that can free you truly from pride. And I'm just gonna mention this. We don't have time. <laughs> I wish we could go into this. This is so good. But now you can practice something that will help you. Okay, tomorrow, when you go to work on Monday, whether it's home, in the office, you can practice the discipline of secrecy. Okay, what is that? Well, Dallas Willard talked about this, but it's the love of being unknown. Have you guys ever thought about that? Okay, because of Jesus, I look to him now. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I just look up to him. I, I, I can't do anything. He saved me. He saved me. Then you know what happens? You suddenly get this extreme motivation to work harder than ever before. You want to actually live a good life. You actually want to be excellent at everything you do. Why? For him. But simultaneously, as you are driven to be excellent for God, at the same time, you don't care one bit who notices. Right? Because it's him. He saved you. You know what you've been through. You've been humbled. So you don't care one bit if it's noticed or recognized or not. So now for the first time, you can go to work and you can practice the discipline of secrecy. It's the love of being unknown. You know what? I actually prefer to be unknown. Amen? Amen? 
Amen. I actually don't want people to notice me and, and, and say good things about me. I actually want to practice that. Why? Because I have pride in my heart still. But I know, I know him. I know who was chopped down on my behalf. I actually prefer to be unknown. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, pastors are one of the worst. We are one of the most notorious at not being able to do this. But Jesus can help you to do this. Now, there could be an unhealthy expression of that, right? You can be driven by fear. I don't want anyone to see me. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about a healthy expression of I'm gonna work hard and be excellent, but I don't care. I don't care anymore who sees, amen? Let's bow before the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. But we humble ourselves, Lord. Truly today, we humble ourselves. Lord, your word cannot be denied. The word says, the world says, have pride in yourself. Okay, you need self-confidence. But you are so clear. Your word says, no. Pride will kill you. It is a great threat on your soul. And we must immediately repent of it and be humbled. So Lord God, we, we want to look to the cross. That's the only true way we can be humbled. We must look to you, that you are the tree that was chopped down on our behalf. And so now, Lord, it really doesn't matter. Okay, we can, as one author put it, we can stop the act. We can stop the act. Just drop it. Drop the act. Lord, we just live before you. So Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord. Help us to truly be humble people. As the saying goes, humble people don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. So Lord God, help us to just not think about ourselves that much. We worship you. We want to fill our thoughts with you. So let's just come before him. Let's just spend some time in his presence before the Lord. Thank you, Father God. We, we worship you.